I want you to open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3 as we're going to be continuing our series in Malachi entitled Worship Restored this morning. Uh, Brad Orta from Country Bible covered for me last week, covering the section in the middle of chapter 3. We're going to be covering the end of chapter 3, verses 13 through 18 together this morning in our service. And while you turn there, I want you to consider something with me. Uh, Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Odds are, whether you're a new believer, whether you haven't yet placed your faith in Christ, or whether you've been living as a believer for a long time, you've wrestled with this question or questions like it. For some, this is an issue of ongoing confusion and frustration in their lives, as they've wrestled with this question both personally and philosophically. For others, it has proven to be the first nail in the coffin of their perception of Christianity. As they've pursued the now trendy label of ex-evangelical by deconstructing their faith. Wrestling with the tension we feel in this life of why do good things happen to bad people and why do bad things happen to good people? Is God arbitrarily judging the world? It may come as a surprise to you that the Bible is not oblivious to these questions. In fact, it speaks to both the source of this problem and the right and wrong ways to deal with this tension we feel in this life. I hope to address both briefly in our time together this morning from Malachi chapter 3. Both the right way and the wrong way to wrestle with this question as believers. But as you may imagine... Based upon the rest of the book of Malachi, the people of Israel incorrectly deal with this question. In Malachi chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, we will see how they address the question of evil in this world. Hopefully that's given you time to reach Malachi chapter 3. Read with me verses 13 through 18 as we consider the question of good and bad in this world. Malachi chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Let's pray together. Father, as the song we just sang says, we are waiting on so many things. We stand in between the already and the not yet. And at times we struggle with what that means for our lives. Lord, as we address this hard question from Malachi this morning, I pray that you would give us wisdom Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of your word. Lord, that you would speak powerfully through me. 
Lord, help us to discern correctly what it is that your word is saying. And help it to not just be head knowledge, but help it to change our hearts as well. Lord, we wait on you. We rest in you. You are good and you are sovereign. Lord, we wait even now for you to work in our service together. We ask that you would be present, that your spirit would powerfully work in our hearts and minds today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it's hard to believe, amen. (laughs) It's hard to believe, but this morning we will examine our sixth and final dispute in the book of Malachi. So far, God has critiqued Israel's forgetful worship, their worthless and ignorant worship, their faithless worship, their impure worship, and then last week, their cheap worship of him. This week, the people return to the theme of God's justice from three weeks ago, and we will address their fickle worship, their fickle worship, and how their worship depended upon their perception of what God was doing for them in this life. The breakdown of this passage, you may have noticed it as we were reading through, basically breaks down into two sections, 13 through 15, a section I am calling the limit of human vision. What is it that we perceive? What is it that as humans we see in the world? The second section, verses 16 through 18, I've called the assurance of divine distinction. What hope is there from God's perception of reality? How does God see this question of evil and good in the world that we wrestle with? We're also going to talk a little bit about our appropriate reaction at the end, but I'll explain that more when we get to the end of the message. As has become typical, and those of you that have been with us over the course of Malachi are probably expecting, God leads off this discussion, and the people respond with the way they see things. Look at verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. Your words have been hard against me. You know, as we've walked through Malachi again and again and again, the people have lobbed their accusations at God. The way they perceive things, their perception on the way God is mistreating them in their worship. And all of those accusations come to a fine point in this sixth and final dispute with the Lord. They lob another strong accusation at God, and it gets very, very particular at this point. They say that that God is serving God is vain. We'll see that in verse 14 here in a moment, but God says, your words are hard against me. You have been accusing me and accusing me and accusing me. And he's going to speak some truth into their situation. Now, we wouldn't do this, would we? We wouldn't find ourselves in a difficult season lobbying accusations at God for having responded incorrectly to us. That our lives and our situations are unfair. That God is maybe somehow unjust in the way he has dished out blessing in the world. I find too often we resonate with the people in the book of Malachi, do we not? And the people respond with what has become expected at this point. Look at verse 13. Their response is predictable. And at this point, we can probably all say it together from memory, right? But you say. The people respond, but you say, how have we spoken against you? Self-righteously, the people make the case that they're innocent and ask God to prove that their words have been hard against him. Prove to us that what we're saying is unjust, God. 
You don't know what's going on, God. You don't understand what's going on in our hearts, God. Self-righteously, they say, we are innocent. We are guilty of nothing, Lord. So God goes into more detail. You have said, verse 14, and this is the heart of the issue, it is vain to serve God. What the people's accusation against God was that it is vain to serve Him. Vain literally conveys the idea of being worthless or being futile, being empty, being of no value. Now, why would the people be accusing God and saying it is vain, it is worthless, it is futile to worship you? Well, in short, the material blessings that they were experiencing didn't add up to what they thought they deserved from God for the worship they had given Him. Remember, they were bringing their sacrifices to the Lord. They were worshiping God. They were going through all of the rituals that God had commanded them to do, and they were saying, God, how come you're not blessing us the way we expect you to? The people were standing in front of God and saying, we've put our coins into the magical gumball machine of God, but we're not getting back the gumballs that we expect. They weren't as happy, as healthy, or as wealthy as they thought they should be. So therefore, God was mistreating them. God was being unfair to them. God was making it worthless or vain to serve Him. And specifically, they lobbed two accusations at God. Look at verse 13 and, or verse 14 and 15. They say two things, two flip sides of the same coin, if you will. First, they say, what is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? They say there is no profit in obedience or repentance to God. We're not benefiting from it. We may walk in obedience to God. We may mourn and be repentant before God, but it is vain. There is no profit in it. Now, we already know from our discussion of the book of Malachi that their obedience, quote-unquote, was at best half-hearted. They were bringing unacceptable sacrifices to God. They were not living morally upright lives in their private lives. They were not worshiping God as they should publicly. We also know that their mourning was merely external. They were putting on sackcloth and ashes. They were walking around wearing black trying to convey that they were mourning, but they were not repentant in their hearts. You can tell by the way they have lobbed accusation after accusation back at God and saying, you're the problem. You're the issue, Lord. If you would just do what you said you would do, we would be fine. And so the people weren't actually mourning, it was merely external. Ironically, they were showing that their service was in vain. The type of service, the type of obedience they were giving back to God was vain. Because it wasn't from the heart. Because it wasn't intended to please God. Because it wasn't with the right mentality. Which brings us to an interesting point that I think we should pause on for just a moment here. And that is service to God simply for material blessing and external mourning without heartfelt repentance is a waste. To serve God simply for what He will give back to us, to just put on an external front of being repentant and mourning for our sin, 
is in vain. It is a waste because it doesn't come from the heart. Because it doesn't seek to return appropriate worship to God. It just simply seeks our own benefit. But the people were saying there's no profit in obedience and repentance, Lord. We're not getting the benefit out of it that we think we deserve. You're being unfair to us, Lord. But their issues go beyond just how God is treating them. Look at verse 15. He says this, And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. He said, in addition to the fact that there's no profit for obedience and repentance to you, God, there's no punishment for evil and mocking people either. It's gotten so bad that in their perception, they call the arrogant blessed. It's not those that follow God that are blessed. It's those that rebel against God that are blessed in their perception. Because of two things, first of all, they say, because evildoers prosper and they put God to the test and they escape. They look around at the world that they're living in. They say, what is doing well are those that do evil and those that follow God do poorly. In their vision, in their view, it is actually a detriment to follow God. Those that refuse to follow God are the ones that get ahead, and those that follow God aren't blessed at all. Their observation of how the world works is that the wicked are successful, they're wealthy, and they're powerful, while those that follow God aren't blessed at all. And as a result, they quit worshiping God. They go, why would I worship a God when obedience to Him is vain? When He doesn't even punish evil? When He's indifferent to justice? And we tend to resonate with this, don't we? At least I tend to resonate with this at times. It, it feels like evil prospers and good fails in this world sometimes, doesn't it? Students, doesn't it feel like sometimes, even though you study all week, even though you do all your homework, even though you get ready for the test, it's the student that cheats off the smartest kid in the class's paper that does the best, right? Those of you that are in work. It feels though that you try to do what you're told, you try to follow and you try to work hard. It's the person that flatters the boss that gets the promotion, right? It almost goes without saying that it feels like those that don't tell the truth are the ones that get elected, right? We look out on the world and it feels like the way to get ahead in business, in life, is not to follow God's plan, but to do things the world's way. And we see things and we perceive in our own vision that the way to get ahead is to do it the world's way. Those that lie and cheat and steal are the ones that are successful, and God doesn't seem to do anything. And more than that, those that are engaging in those kind of things boast about what they've done and they mock God's law, do they not? 
I could list off any number of famous people or celebrities and the way they assure you that the reason they've got this position of power and influence, money and fame, is because of themselves. Because they did it themselves, not because of some sort of blessing from the Lord, but because of what they've done to accomplish it. And they say God had no impact on this. It's so bad that we've got a saying for it in English. Nice guys finish last, right? That is the way it feels at times in this life. And before we know it, we find ourselves struggling in our relationship with God and our worship of Him too. We find ourselves starting to think it is vain to serve God. Those that don't serve God seem to get ahead, and I don't seem to do very well when I'm honest and upright and obey God. What gives? But in God's perspective, is that observation accurate? This is our limited human vision looking at the world and assessing the way the world works. But is that how things really are? Because truth is directed by God's word, not just our feelings and experiences, right? Sure, we feel this way. Sure, it looks this way. But is that what God's word says is true? In verses 16 through 18, God responds and we see the assurance of divine distinction. Verse 16 is is what we might call an editorial note. It feels like he steps away from the speech and we get this little narrative. Look at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. The people lob this accusation that it's vain to serve God And the narrative steps away from Malachi and says, look at these people. These believers speak to each other, those who feared the Lord. You'll note, if you've been with us for the rest of Malachi, that this idea of fearing the Lord is a repeated theme in Malachi. Fearing the Lord isn't a cowering, afraid of what God might do to us, but it's a reverential awe and respect, an intent to obey Him and follow Him with our lives. And he says, those who feared Him spoke with one another. People were having these conversations amongst each other. But it's worth noting here real quickly that in a book like Malachi, you can go through it and it can feel like everything is doom and gloom. Like everyone has fallen away from God and no one is faithful to the Lord. But note here when we get to this verse, for the first time in some ways in Malachi, we see that there was a remnant of faithful people in Judah. No matter how dark things get, God will always maintain a remnant of those that are faithful to him. No matter how difficult the situation, no matter how dark the times, God will always maintain a remnant of those that are faithful to him. And so we see this small group of people who served the Lord. And it's unclear from the context whether these are people that repented based upon Malachi's Recommend, or based upon Malachi's speeches, or whether they were people that were faithfully serving God before he got there. And it doesn't really matter. There was a group of people that sought to fear the Lord. And it's interesting to note that they're having these conversations with one another, right? Those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. 
going to say that God noticed what they were saying, but it's interesting because the whole book has been about worship and responding appropriately to God, but what God is noting here is that the people were speaking among each other. And God was noticing the conversations they were having with each other, the private conversations and what they said about who God is. Have you considered that in your own life? That God is mindful of every private conversation, every hidden thing that is thought and that is said, both good and bad, in your lives. It's almost as if Shakespeare's famous quote, the whole world is a stage, is actually the case. Everything that goes on in our lives, faithful or unfaithful to God, it's as if God gets a front row seat and he's watching it. He's seeing what's taking place. And that should both cause us to shudder, but in this context, it's meant to encourage us. Because these people who the world seemed like it wasn't going very well, this faithful remnant of God, God says, I saw it. The Lord paid attention and heard them. It's an encouragement that no matter who else in the world sees our faithfulness, God sees it. God hears it. And God hearing is God taking action. He's going to do something about what he hears in his people here. And we must recognize that even though our eyes tell us that the world seems unjust, God is aware of what's really going on in your heart, in your life, in private. Because God responds. What does God do? And this is really, really intriguing. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Those that feared God and those that sought to worship him by esteeming his name appropriately, God keeps a record of their righteous speech. Think about that for a moment. God witnesses the conversations they're having amongst each other, and God says, let's record a record of this in heaven. God recording and, and creating books is a common theme throughout the Old and the New Testament. So we know about the, the book of life where the names of those that are faithful to God are written. We, we read about records of God keeping track of what happens, both good and bad, in lives. And here it says that God looked at his people and those that feared him, and he has a book written for those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Here's the principle we have to keep in mind. In spite of the external appearance of this life, God sees, he values, and he remembers our private faithfulness to him. Even if no one else does. We look at the world and we say, it looks like the wicked prosper and the righteous fail. And God says, but I see, I value, and I remember what appears to go unnoticed in this world. Even if nobody else notices your faithfulness in this life, even if no one else notices or gives you praise for what you've done in obedience to God, God sees it. God remembers it. God cares about what's done in obedience to him. 
And then God speaks two really important promises that we have to keep in mind as we're wrestling with the difficulties of this life. Verse 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. God doesn't so much address the philosophical question of good and evil. He says, you want to see whether or not it's vain to serve me? They shall be mine. Those that serve me, I will make them my treasured possession. This term, treasured possession, is the idea of in all the riches, in all the bank account that you have, what is the most valuable thing you have? Elsewhere in the Old Testament, it talks about like stockpiles of riches, and it would be like the precious jewels or the most precious item that a person has. God says, those that are faithful to me, I will make up my treasured possession from them. In spite of what our eyes see, one day God will give every blessing to his treasured people. But he has not promised that that will be material blessings in this life. God's perspective is not the same as ours. We think if we do things right, then everything will go our way today. God says, I've promised to make you my treasured possession. I've promised to give you everything, but it may not be in this life and it won't be today. And secondarily, and maybe most comforting to us, he says, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. For those that are faithful to God, for those that fear God, he promises that one day God will mercifully spare those who have been faithful to him. And not only that, he says, I will spare them as a son who serves him. How can I be a son? If I have read the rest of the book of Malachi, I am woefully aware of the fact that my heart, just like the people in Judah, fails to live up to what God has called me to. How can God say, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him? It's precisely what Dave Drevo talked about two weeks ago. The entire book of Malachi begs for one to come on the scene who will fix the problem of worship in the people. And the incredible reality of the gospel is that God gave his only son so that he could spare us and adopt us as sons. Every single one of us fails to live up to God's expectation of worship for him from the book of Malachi. The only way to restore appropriate worship of God is to first and foremost make us worshipers as sons. And so in spite of our lack of meeting up to God's holiness, God sends his son, the only one who actually lived up to this expectation, and he dies on our behalf so that God can say, I will spare you as my sons. And so we recognize that God's mercy falls on us when we place our faith and hope in Christ. And God spares us as a son who serves him. And the blessing of serving God as a son rather than serving him as a servant 
is that He's already given us everything we need. Our worship of Him doesn't have to be contingent upon whether He's blessed us materially in the ways we think He should. Because He's promised to give us everything as His treasured possession. He moves on in verse 18 to say what the result of this should be. He says, Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. In chapter 4, we're going to deal more specifically with the wicked and how God will address that issue. But for now, he says, once more, you shall see. He says, you have been missing this. Your vision is too short-sighted. I'm going to pull back that curtain and I'm going to show you what you need to see. He offers them a future hope that someday the distinction between the righteous and the wicked will be clear. He doesn't say it doesn't appear to be blurry in this life. He says, one day I will show it to you. Now, do you remember the first time that this idea of you shall see came up in the book of Malachi? Back in chapter 1, verse 5, flip to the left in your Bibles real briefly and look at this. Starting off the whole book of Malachi, establishing God's paradigm here in Malachi, we read in verse 5 of chapter 1, your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. Starting off the book of Malachi, God is distinguishing between Jacob and Esau, between the mercy that he's shown on Jacob and the judgment that's going to fall on Esau. And he pulls back the curtain to reveal those that are his and those that aren't. And he does the exact same thing here in verse verse 18. He said, then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. I know you can't see it now. I know you don't see it today. But I am going to show it to you. One day. And these pairs, I think, should be taken together. He says, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. He says, I'm going to distinguish. You find yourself asking the question, why do good things happen to bad people? Why do bad things happen to good people? And God says, I'm going to show the difference between those that are mine and those that aren't. One day. Not today. Not right now. But one day. God will ultimately distinguish between the righteous and the wicked by revealing them as his treasured possession. That is a truth we have to hold on to. We do not live for today as believers. We do not evaluate God's blessing and love for us based upon the material reality of the world we live in. See, most fundamentally, what the people here in Malachi 3 had was a vision problem. Most fundamentally, what we have is a vision problem. I don't know how many of you wear glasses. I wear contact lenses. Um, And I'm what they call nearsighted. And I'm what they call really nearsighted, okay? Like, I'm like legally blind without my glasses. Okay, I can't read a book without going cross-eyed first. If you can just imagine that. Those of you that have never worn glasses, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Okay? Some of you are probably farsighted. You can see far, but you can't see near. I'm nearsighted, which means I can see close, really close, but I can't see far off into the distance. And that's exactly the same problem that the people had. All they could see was what was right in front of their faces. 
all they could see was what they observed in the world. And they say, God, this doesn't look right. Just like my vision, things like when the, when the, the, the doctor tells me to read what's on the wall, it's all a blur. I can't see anything clearly. Now, my wife, if she was standing next to me, she has 20-20 vision. And if she were to look, she'd be like, you know, A, D, F, G, C, you know, that whole thing. And I'm like, I just, I see nothing. Are we willing to be open to the idea that our vision and understanding of the world as we see it is blurry? It's not God's vision and understanding of the way the world actually works? See, the people looked at their situation and they thought for sure they were correctly reading the situation. They say, God, you're unfair. It's no benefit to serve you at all. And God says, one day, I'm going to correct your vision. One day, you're going to see the way things really are in this life. One day, I'm going to separate those that are mine from those that aren't. And I will pour out every blessing on those that are mine as my treasured possession. See, here's, here's the problem. When we observe the world like the people of Judah observe the world, we have a tendency to be jealous and to envy those in this world that seem to be getting ahead, don't we? The painful irony is we shouldn't envy them. We should pity them. Because the common grace of the blessings that they experience in, the, in this life, apart from Christ, is as good as it's ever going to get. We look at them and we say, that's the standard of what a good life is. But the problem is, that's as good as it's ever going to get. For those that have placed their faith and hope in Christ, the future, even though today doesn't look as good, the future hope is so much better than the material blessings that they're experiencing. And so our response shouldn't be envy, it shouldn't be anger, it shouldn't be frustration, it should be sorrow. Because if all you ever have is the blessings that you experience in this life, that is a sad, sad reality in light of eternity. And so I, I would warn you, as I started off talking about, there's, there's two groups of people. There are those that are really struggling to hang on, and they need to be reassured that this life is not all that there is. For those of you that came in this morning as a cynic, and you found yourself going, I don't know if that whole God thing is worth pursuing. I don't know if anything makes sense in the Christian worldview. It looks like Christians don't do so well, and it looks like those that rebel against God get whatever they want in this life. Let me just caution you that what Scripture is saying here is that there's more than just this life. And one day, God's going to reveal, God's going to pull back the curtain on the difference between those that follow Him and those that don't. And the blessing of this life, ill-gotten gains in this world are going to pale in comparison to the hope that God offers of himself in heaven. But at that point, the opportunity to place your faith and trust in Christ will be gone. Don't wait until that moment to realize that this moment isn't all there is. See, we look 
through the eyes of the people of Judah, and we see that they have this human perspective on the world. They say, it is vain to serve God. It is worthless to serve God because I don't get the blessings in this life that I think I should. And God comes in and he says, one day you'll see. One day I will open your eyes to the reality of realities, to what you're missing because of your short-sightedness today. And one day I will distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between those that serve me and those that do not. I have not missed a thing of what you've done in faithfulness to me. So the people of Israel responded incorrectly to the already but not yet, to the the waiting on God to act. But the evil in this world is still very real, is it not? We know that God is good, and we know that what we see in this world is wrong. And we wrestle with how to respond today. We look forward to the future hope that we have, but the question still begs to be asked, how do we appropriately address these questions today? I want to invite Pastor Mike and Pastor Troy to come up here and join me on stage because I think the appropriate response here to much of the same questions that are being wrestled with in this text in Malachi chapter 3 is found in Psalm 73. Turn in your Bibles back to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is an example of a psalm of lament. It is a psalm in Scripture that addresses How do we respond to God when the world seems to be out of control? When it feels like the wicked and the evil prosper? When it feels like the righteous just fall by the wayside? And so what I'm going to have Troy and Mike help me with this morning is we're going to end our service with a time of prayer of lament. And we're going to read through each section in Psalm 73. And then each one of us will lead in a time of prayer. And as we do that, I would encourage each of you to pray privately and specifically for what you've experienced and what you see in this world. Because as the believer, we don't live for today. We live for a future hope, but we still have to wrestle with the evil and the wickedness that we see in the world today. And Psalms like Psalm 73 give us a language to express back to God the lament for the evil and the pain that we experience in this life. So I encourage you as we're going through to read along with us and to pray with us the prayer of Psalm 73. Read with me Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they had no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression." They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches, 
All in vain have kept my heart, or I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. We're going to pause here for a moment before moving on to the rest of the psalm. I would encourage you to pray a lament for what we see of evil and wickedness in this world. Pray with me. Father, we confess that in our vision, the world at times appears to be out of control. Lord, we witness evil and wickedness in ways that should cause us to weep in this world. Lord, the pain that goes on, the evil that takes place around the world, wars and famine and disease, Lord, humans doing un believable things to each other. And we confess that these things break our heart. There is evil beyond belief in this world. Lord, we even see in our own backyards, in our own town, in our own neighborhoods, in our own church, we wound and we hurt each other. We are wounded by and hurt each other. The ravages of sin on this world are untold. And we cry out to you, how long will you allow this to go on? Lord, even the depravity of our own hearts. What we are capable of, what each of us knows in our own hearts, is a scary and saddening thing. And in my own heart, I cry out, Lord, how long will I have to live with this body of flesh, this sinful man inside of me? And Lord, we beg you to fix it. We know that you see evil in this world so much beyond what we see. The pain and the wickedness that you observe is so much more than even in our human vision we see. So we cry out for you to be just, for you to address sin and evil and wickedness in this world. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the, into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Let's pray again for perspective. Lord, I confess that I often lack the right perspective on the things that are happening around me. Instead of trusting in you, I lean on my own understanding, which is always incomplete and faulty. And when I try to make sense of the world through my own eyes, 
I despair. But as the psalm has said, your word brings us your perspective that there is more going on than we can see. You are working to fulfill all that you have said and promised. Lord, I pray that you'd help us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. You have promised that he will reign with perfect justice and righteousness. The wicked will not get away with their wickedness. Those who oppress the poor and the weak will be punished. Sickness will be banished forever. Wars will be no more. And there will be great reward for all who put their trust in you. Bring these things to our remembrance when we gather together. Reorient our thoughts around what is true and right. And even though I often falter in my trust, you continually give mercy, grace, and love through your Son. Verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength. It's the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. My Father, I'm, I'm struck by the beginning of this, verse 23, nevertheless, nevertheless, no matter what goes on with, around me and within this world, the good, the bad, Father, the evil, the wicked, and the righteous things. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me to glory. Father, the picture I just see here is of a father holding onto my right hand. Father, the love of a father who I can trust will not let go of my hand, who will guide me. Father, who is a light and a lamp unto my path. So, Father, I thank you for your word and the counsel that it gives. And, Father, the fact also that in the end, no matter what we face today, no matter what we face this afternoon or tomorrow, because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the living hope through the resurrected Christ, Father, we will one day be received to glory. And, Father, there is nothing on this earth that we should desire more than you. And yet, Father, sadly, my flesh and my heart fail me daily. But, Father, I pray that you will be our strength, the strength of my heart. And, Father, I was reminded as I consider this Psalm 2 of Isaiah 26, where the mind that is fixed on God, he will offer to us perfect peace because we trust in him. So, Father, I pray for those that are here today and Father, those I specifically have on my mind who have had trials this weekend and are facing very difficult times, Lord, I pray that their eyes would be fixed on Christ, 
on the God who is the author and perfecter of our faith, that they will see the cross clearly, that they will see the living hope and that we have in you, and that you are a stronghold, that you are a refuge, that you are a place where we can come to hide. And Father, you simply ask that we would trust you. And Father, I also confess that I put my trust in so many different things at times. In my wife, in my family, friends. But yet, Father, how foolish that is. And Lord, you are the one, you are the only one who can hold my hand and never let go. You will never leave me nor forsake me. You have promised us that. So Lord, I pray that my faith will continue to grow, it will deepen, and that my trust and my confidence will rest in you and you alone. Father, I pray that for each one of us that's here. And Father, that your spirit today would minister to those who are finding themselves struggling, and that they can see clearly by your spirit and by your word that you are trustworthy, that you are faithful, and that you will hold tight to us and never let go. Thank you, Father, for Christ who is our living hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.